Sermon on the Mount series and this is uh, session six that we're on to and we're on to verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Let me just pray for a moment as we look at this. Father, I want to ask that you would help us today. Help us to understand your word, Jesus. Pray it open our hearts, soften our hearts and Father, help us to understand that you don't lay burdens upon us but you help us to live a life that is pleasing to you. And so Lord, I pray for your word, that it would go out and that it would produce fruit in our hearts today. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this has been quite a challenge in preparation. Actually, they're all a challenge. I find every time I read the Bible, I don't know about you, but I find it a massive challenge. I find it a massive encouragement, but I also find it a massive challenge because... I don't know if you've noticed, but Jesus doesn't exactly beat about the bush, does he? And so he says here, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And there is a kind of understanding that if we are not pure in heart, we won't see God. I mean, just think about that for a moment. Purity is linked to seeing God. Now, I'd say that in our generation, purity is of little or no value nowadays. Uh, If you watch what's on television... If you listen about the language that you go around in your neighborhood, uh, I'd probably wonder what we would get if we asked young people today to define purity. I wonder what kind of definition that we would end up with. Now, the Bible's really clear. Purity here means to be morally pure or innocent. Now, purity actually is impossible for us to attain. I don't know if you know that, but we cannot attain purity. Purity flows out of the grace of God that is received through confession, through repentance, and through allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's the only way we become morally pure. Jesus is the one who makes us morally pure. And then, once we have come to him, he gives us the power to live a morally pure life. It is not a natural thing. In fact, the natural thing is following the desires of our sinful nature. Listen to what Romans tells us. Romans 8, 6 to 8. So letting your sinful nature control your minds leads to death. But letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. What a statement. The sinful nature is extremely powerful. It will overcome all that we do. If you look at the legislation, if you look at what's going on in society, and we are changing things to meet the dictates of the sinful nature. Romans 8 says, for if you live by the dictates of the flesh, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. What's that telling us? It's telling us that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can overcome the sinful nature. Now, here's the question. Why is this such a big issue? It's an issue, firstly, because it's about obedience to God. Eternal life 
is being with God for all eternity and he has said that if you are not morally pure, you will not see me. It's only possible through living according to God's spirit, living according to his commands. If we live according to the sinful nature, it leads not just to a natural death, but to a death that the Bible calls hell. Secondly, if we do not live morally pure lives, I believe it affects our mental health. The further we move from God's standard of morality, the more broken we become. The best quality of life, the greatest peace of mind and mental health is found in a relationship with God that leads to a lifestyle of moral purity. Let me repeat something I just read from Romans 8 and verse 6. It says, So letting your sinful nature control your minds leads to death, But letting the spirit control your minds leads to life and peace. You know, mental health very often is linked to the fact that there is turmoil going on inside the individual. There is no sense of peace. There is a distress that is going on. And as we come to Jesus and we restore the order and we we have the sinful nature dealt with by the spirit... He brings a peace in that affects you here and here and everything that you do. Let me mention to you the dangers of an immoral life. We are sadly at a stage where our society is redefining morality. Good is now being described as immoral and immorality as good. If you stand up and say anything on sexuality that is to do with same sex, that is to do with adultery, that is to do with all kinds of of deviant sexual practices, you will be shot down in flames. Now the Bible warns us about this. Isaiah said, and he said this, you got to think Isaiah was around 700 BC. So we're going back 2,700 years and this is what he says. What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil, that dark is light and light is dark, and that bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and think themselves so clever. What sorrow for those who are heroes at drinking wine and boast about all the alcohol they can hold. They take bribes to let the wicked go free and they punish the innocent. You know, we are to some measure living in that uh, era now. Now, I need to define something for you here for a moment, the word evil. The word evil in the Bible is radically different to the word evil in the world. Yeah, the word evil in the world is defined as anybody who does stuff that is contrary to our society's norms. And let me tell you, at some point, that will be us because we won't fit in those norms. But in the Bible, evil is morality that does not fall in line with God's definition of it. Everything that a person does that is in direct contradiction of God's commands is classed as evil. This will offend people. 
It's, it's, you know, it's really tempting to mention some of the trendy sins and to demonize those, but I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to do that because actually we need to highlight that any activity that is condemned by the Bible is classed as being evil. There are lists in the Bible. If you go through the New Testament, it's got a number of lists of what God says is evil. It includes adultery, it includes lying, it includes greed, it includes gluttony. Some of these things might surprise us. I suggest you have a look through. So immorality on any level, according to God's definition, brings judgment. Now I can hear you saying, Simon, that's really harsh. You know, it is harsh. Do you know why it's harsh? Because that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus didn't die to correct a few bad people. He didn't die so that maybe a few bits in your life that are not quite good would be sorted out. He died because we are completely and utterly evil and only he can save us. Romans 7 says, So the trouble is not with the law, for it is, the, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am too, all too human, a slave to sin. And then he goes on in Romans 3. Well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? Not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are all under the power of sin. And as the scripture has said, no one is righteous, not even one. Think about that for a moment. Not even Mother Teresa. Woo. He goes on to say, no one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace and they have no fear of God at all. We don't become righteous by naming the sins of others, but by confessing our own sin and seeking forgiveness and grace. But having said that, as a community of believers we have a responsibility to champion God's standards. We are not here to put a flag out on the standards that we have, but on the standards that God has. You know, the, the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah, there was a short overlap, and there was a short overlap between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And you know, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, they, they had a really, really tough time. Because they continually said to the nation of Israel, God has given you a law, you need to obey it. And you're not doing that, and it's going to bring judgment. And you know, in the end, um, Isaiah was taken, put into a hollowed out tree and sawn in two. I don't know how Jeremiah ended, but I know that during his lifetime he was thrown into a muddy pit to die and it was an Ethiopian who pulled him out and saved his life. The challenge for us as the world gets darker 
is not to join the darkness, but to shine all the brighter. The difficulty is, is that is not the easy option. Let me tell you what I believe will be coming to our country. I believe that in the coming years we will lose our charity status. I believe that we'll lose gift aid, that finance will disappear unless we adhere to inclusivity and diversity that is being pushed on every front. And I think a lot of churches will capitulate as the Methodists have done this year. The church will be attacked because of her stance on morality. That is why we will be attacked. We will be attacked because there are certain things that we say we will not do. Christians will lose their jobs, they will lose their friends, they will lose members of their family, they will lose finance, they will lose their rights, they will be put into prison, all on the basis that we are sticking with the values that Jesus has said, this is what we need to stick to. Now, let me be really clear, I know that historically the church hasn't dealt too well with some things. We've demonized it. We've said those people are second-class citizens, and that's not, that's not right. We do recognize that the world is broken and that people are broken. We recognize that, and we recognize that that is a result of sin. We love all people, and we seek to help them by leading them to Jesus, because without Jesus, they will never, ever be set free. Here's the problem. The problem is if we endorse their sin and we leave them in their sin. That's the problem. So my problem with the Methodist church uh, is not that it, it loves people who are homosexual. My problem is that they have now said that the Bible doesn't teach that that is wrong. But that's where I have an issue because the Bible is really clear on some of these issues. Now, I know I've mentioned that with the Methodist church, but actually it follows through on every sexual deviancy from adultery. It talks about gluttony. It talks about lying. It talks about hypocrisy. I'm not singling out one thing. We need to stand for truth. And if we do that, we will be attacked. If you remember, we did a series on the seven churches in Revelation, and the thing that was leading to judgment for those churches were when they were compromising with the world. We will lose people over this. Jesus told us that we would. Some people, sadly, will be more concerned with approval of the world. Some people will have a greater allegiance to their blood family than to the family of Jesus. A friend of mine whose church is not a million miles away, he has addressed some of these issues in his church and overnight he's lost one third of his congregation. These things are happening now. And yet we know what Jesus said, Luke 14, 26, if you want to be my disciple, you must by comparison hate everyone else, your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. Who do you love the most? And then Jesus said about what was going to happen in Matthew 10, he says, a brother will betray his brother to death, a father will betray his own child, and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. 
and all nations will hate you because you are my followers. But everyone who endures to the end will be saved. In Matthew 24, Jesus said, then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and then the end will come. My friends, I I don't think we're too far away from some of this. I know our brothers and sisters are already facing it in China. You only have to see what's going on in Afghanistan. And if you look at any of the Islamic nations to what is going on there with believers, it's coming. And my job is to say, guys, we need to make a decision here. We could do what the Methodist Church have done, but then we would not be followers of Jesus. This will all be about moral values. It's being played out. You know, I don't know how much you're up to date with some of these things, but I know Christian couples are refused adoption because they don't agree with the moral standards that are being pushed out by the adoption agency. These things will intensify and we need to prepare ourselves. You know, we do, I I repeat this, we recognise that sin is in the world and that we're all sinners and we're all affected by that. It includes all of us. We also recognise there's nothing we can do about sin and we recognise that God has judged sin and we know the punishment is hell. We know these things. But we also recognise that God and his great love and in his mercy has made provision for us. That if we repent, if we renounce our sin, if we turn from sin to God, the sacrifice of Jesus will remove all of our sin. Now this simply means that everybody in the whole world is on the same starting place, on the same level. No person is better than another. I am no better than anybody who doesn't follow Jesus. I'm in the same category. However, there is a slight difference. For the believer, it means the judgment that we deserve of hell has already been paid. Jesus has died in my place. Jesus died in our place. And that is the catch. For the world out there that does not believe in Jesus, the debt of sin still remains. That debt of sin has to be paid. And for those who give their lives to Jesus, who repent, who follow and align themselves with Jesus, that debt has been paid. But for every non-Christian, it remains to be paid. This is why we can't leave people in their sin, even if they hate us for it. You know, if you saw a child playing with fire, you wouldn't just sit back and say, yeah, it's up to you, mate. You'd rush in and say, this is not good. And we have a responsibility, and not to denounce and decry, but to say to people, listen, this is the truth of why Jesus died. These sayings of Jesus are not easy. 
But you know, the road that Jesus had to travel to gain our forgiveness was not easy either. So where does this leave us? Well, in simple terms, a follower of Jesus obeys Jesus. That's the bottom line. And those who don't obey Jesus are not his followers. Jesus himself says that in John 14, 23, 24. He said, all who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. So the simple thing is this, if we obey Jesus, we are his followers. If we don't, we're not. My primary concern is that I follow Jesus. That we follow Jesus. That my family, that my children, that we follow Jesus. That is my primary concern. Now, we don't do it in a coercive manner, but we do it saying, this is what the truth is. There, there are massive challenge, but we need to remember that Jesus walked through such a painful death that we might be forgiven. Jesus's message and the message that we bring is a message of invitation. It is not coercive. It's not telling people this is what you must do. But when we talk to people, we need to say we are trying to save you from something that is coming. On Friday at uh, Mr. Dwyer's funeral, we read out this scripture in 1 Corinthians and it talks about the last trumpet sounding. You know, the last trumpet is ahead of us. It's not yet been blown. And the last trumpet signals the end of this world as we know it. When the last trumpet sounds, those who believe in Jesus are raised from the dead and go up. Those who believe in Jesus who are alive will go up and they will go in eternity to be with Jesus. The rest will have to go through the judgment seat of Christ and they have to give an account for their life. That is what is at stake in terms of what we are doing. Now I know this has been quite heavy but I want to kind of balance this out from what this um, beatitude says. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Why do we go through all of this? Why do we keep a hold of this? Because we know that peace in our own heart, that mental health, that a life that is full of the joy of God only comes as we are obedient to what God says. And here he says, bless the pure in heart, because they will see God. Now, I believe that's to do with the future seeing, but I also believe it's with the seeing here on earth. John 14, 23, Jesus said, all who love me will do what I say. My father will love them and we will come and make our home with each of them. That means that the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit live in you. They're in you. And it means you can experience the peace. You know, the thing I mentioned earlier, that, that God just flooded my soul with peace. You can experience the peace. You can experience the joy and the love of God. We can see him daily. We can see the presence of God in our lives, and it outweighs all the negativity and the difficulty that comes in the world. 
Very early on in the history of the church, there was a place called Smyrna. You will have heard of that from one of the seven churches in Revelation. But in Smyrna, there was a bishop. He was called Polycarp. And at the age of 86, he was taken by the people of Smyrna. He was brought into a massive stadium and he was told to recant on Jesus. He was told he needed to reject Jesus or face the consequences. This is what he said. He said, for 86 years, I have been Jesus' servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so they executed him at 86 years of age. Having served Jesus all of his life, he demonstrated just how much Jesus is to be coveted above all things. There is a quality of life that Jesus gives to us. Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, Beware, guard against every kind of greed, for life is not measured by how much you own. And let me tell you, that is exactly the values that are in the world. It's about how much you can possess, how much you can own. And here's the thing, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How does that work through? It works through, through trusting in faith. Jesus said that we do not need to live in anxiety or fear, casting all of your cares to him because he cares for you. It's about not being troubled about the world around us because we have faith in God. We've entrusted our lives to Jesus. We know that our lives are safe in his hands. And this is why we seek to be pure in heart. This is why we reject the world's moral standards because Jesus lives in us and he walks with us and those internal qualities that he brings give us a worth and an assurance that it's worth far more than what the world has to offer. And so I want to encourage you today. I know it's not an easy message, but I want to encourage you today. It's about allegiance to Jesus. It's about sticking with Jesus and he will lead us through he knows he knows the end from the beginning 